Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe from spittenkitchen.com for zucchini rice and cheese gratin. September has always been my favorite month. The grimy, relentless sauna that is New York City in August finally lifts, and we can almost always count on a solid week or more of impossibly sunny, low-humidity days that I consider my personal obligation as happy repentance for all of the above griping to spend entirely outdoors. My best memories are from September's. This may sound weird, but I remember going to work on the morning that nobody knew yet would be 9-11 and thinking it was as clear-skied and gorgeous as a day could ever be. Two years later, I met my husband on that day. Six years and a few days after that, we met our baby boy, and I distinctly remember checking into the hospital on a hot summer day and checking out three days later when it was unquestionably fall, disoriented. And yet, the last few Septembers have roundly kicked my rear end. Since having a kid, a pattern has emerged of September being back to everything that will continue for a decade or two. This one is especially a doozy. Good stuff. All holidays and baby namings and birthdays and first days of all the things, but still lacking in a single, unscheduled, unstructured day. All of this is to say, thank God for freezer meals. I didn't make many when I was frenetically nesting in the third trimester. Mostly I liked the idea of them more than I had the energy to make them happen. Post-baby, my husband was off for a few weeks and worked from home for a couple more, making dinner every night, yay, so freezer reserves didn't need to be called in. But now that we are ostensibly back to it, Deb of June 2015 I'd like to thank you. And you, a few years ago, I wrote about a zucchini, tomato, and rice gratin that we like to make in the late summer. A layered casserole of roasted tomatoes, zucchini, cheese, and rice with fun stuff like garlic, sautéed onions, and eggs. It's as delicious as it sounds, but also rather full of steps and dishes. Several people suggested in the comments that I make Julia Child zucchini rice gratin instead, and I was all, Julia Child has a rice gratin? (laughs) It seems so strange to me, so different from what I expected from her classic French repertoire. Even more embarrassing is that it hails from a book that has forever been on my shelf and clearly not given enough time in the spotlight a 1971st edition of the equally worthy but much less gushed over volume two of Mastering the Art of French Cooking that my father had given my mother at the time with an inscription complimenting how far her cooking had come. For shame, Deb. But the dish is fantastic. A giant cheerleading pyramid of zucchini, okay, 2.5 pounds, is shredded, salted, and reduced to a moderate heap mixing with a tiny amount of uncooked rice, some onions sautéed until sweet, garlic, and a just right amount of Parmesan, and baked in a dish until you wonder why you'd ever eat zucchini another way. This is not a gratin in the swimming in cream or in the baked cheese with a few flecks of vegetable scents, 
but in the casserole of the highest calling, ideal, largely wholesome, bronze lid, freezing and reheating perfectly. Let's all make a habit of it. As far as freezer meals, there you can check out this list on the website for some of our favorites, plus a few more coming this month as I work through them. And do suggest any favorites from the archives that you like to freeze as we have missed. Thank you. So here's the recipe. Zucchini, rice, and cheese gratin, also known as Tian de Corget au Riz. Sorry for that. <laughs> The accent, that's supposed to be a French accent. Servings, six, time, 60 to 90 minutes, depending on the version. This is from Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 2. A big update. Several people asked very logical questions after this was published, such as, if you drained two and a half cups of liquid from the zucchini and need to add two and a half cups liquid back, is that salting and draining process necessary? And related to this, it sounds like many people who did not get two and a half cups of liquid from their zucchini and thus added some back found the end results soupy? Also ask, is the flour absolutely necessary? And does the rice have to be parboiled? Can't you just bake the gratin longer? So I retested this several ways and found that you could skip the flour, skip the salting and draining, and even skip the parboiling, and it all worked out. Note, it takes much longer to cook the gratin this way, even if you parboil the rice. Thus, I'm, ad I'm advising you don't even bother because it doesn't save enough time, mostly because it seems to take a long time for the zucchini shreds to release enough liquid to cook the rice. You'll want to give yourself at least 90 minutes, including prep time. This may or may not make it worth it, so I left the original instructions as a second set below. Finally, you'll need to add one half cup of liquid to the uncooked rice to make up for what it would have absorbed in the parboiling. So here is what you need. Butter for the dish, two and a half pounds of zucchini, two and a half teaspoons of kosher salt. I use diamond brand, so use one and a half teaspoons of other brands one half cup of plain uncooked white rice, one medium onion, minced, that's about one cup, five tablespoons of olive oil, divided, two large cloves of garlic, mashed or finely minced, two tablespoons of all-purpose flour, this is optional, one half cup of milk as needed, although water or broth of your choice would work just fine, um, two-thirds cup of grated Parmesan cheese, divided, and salt and pepper. So here's the new simplified directions, and I think we're just going to go with this one so we don't repeat the recipe. You're going to heat the oven to 325 degrees uh, Fahrenheit and oil or butter a two-quart baking dish or two smaller one-quart dishes, as I did, with the intention of freezing one. Prepare your zucchini. Wash the zucchini and trim the ends, have lengthwise, and if seeds are particularly large, core them out. Coarsely grate and place in a large bowl. Then prepare the remaining ingredients. In a large frying pan, you're going to cook the onions slowly in three tablespoons of oil for eight to ten minutes until tender and translucent. Uh, raise the heat slightly and stir several minutes until very lightly browned. Stir in garlic and cook another minute. Add the uncooked rice and saute for another two minutes. 
Season generously with salt and pepper. Then assemble the gratin. Transfer to the bowl with zucchini and stir together with one half cup of liquid of your choice and all but two tablespoons of cheese. Taste and adjust seasoning if needed and then transfer to a prepared baking dish. Bake the gratin. You're going to cover tightly with foil and bake for 50 to 60 minutes until the rice is within, uh, within is cooked but not mush. Increase the oven temperature to 450 degrees. Remove the foil. Drizzle the top with the remaining olive oil or dot with butter. And then sprinkle on the remaining cheese and bake covered until brown and crisp on top. About another 10 to 15 minutes. For extra color, you can run it under the broiler for one minute at the end. Next, we're going to have a recipe for Meyer lemon and fresh cranberry scones, or scones as they say across the pond. Scones are one of my favorite things, and I look forward to this recipe. So, the fresh cranberry gets no love. I can tell you how many recipes I have sifted through recently that boasted cranberry in their titles only to find out that they were actually calling for those shriveled and oversweetened dried ones. Why must cranberries be the neglected stepchild of the season? It's totally undeserved. Fresh cranberries are prettier. They're impressively hardy, keeping for weeks in the fridge and even longer in the freezer with no noticeable aging. And even though I think this is what puts people off, they have a tartness that makes everything they touch better. Because when you put something tart against something sweet, you get a fantastic contrast. And this complexity, my friends, is a very good thing. Like here in the lemon and fresh cranberry scone. Not so different from the dreamy, creamy scones I have been yammering about for years. What can I say? I never forget a good scone. They're so much better with fresh fruit, especially cranberries. They're tart and mildly sweet and fragrant with a mildly crisp edge and softest insides and perfect in every way. Now go get yourself some or go ahead and make them here. Here's the recipe. Meyer Lemon Fresh Cranberry Scones. This is adapted from Gourmet. One of my favorite things about scones is how well they work when you need to plan in advance. Simply roll them out and cut them before flash freezing them separately on a tray and sealing them in a freezer bag until you're ready to bake them. You can bake them right from the freezer, only needing to add three to five extra minutes baking time. Scones are always best when they're freshly baked. You'll need one and a half tablespoons of freshly grated lemon zest from about two lemons, preferably Meyer lemons. Two and a half cups of all-purpose flour, one half cup of sugar plus three tablespoons additional if using cranberries, one tablespoon of baking powder, one half teaspoon salt, three quarters of a stick of cold unsalted butter cut into bits, one and a quarter cups of fresh cranberries chopped coarse, or one and a quarter cups of dried cranberries if you insist. One large egg, one large egg yolk, and one cup of heavy cream. Accompaniment, creme fraiche or whipped cream. You're going to pre preheat the oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit and line a large baking sheet with parchment paper. With a vegetable peeler, you're going to remove the zest from lemons and chop fine, reserving lemons for another use. In a food processor, pulse the flour, one half cup of sugar, baking powder, salt, butter, 
and zest until the mixture resembles coarse meal and transfer to a large bowl. In a small bowl, toss together fresh cranberries and three tablespoons of sugar and stir into the flour mixture. If using dried fruit, add to flour mixture. In another small bowl, lightly beat the egg yolk or the egg and the yolk and stir in cream. Add egg mixture to the flour mixture and stir until just combined. On a well-floured surface with floured hands, pat dough into a one-inch thick round about eight inches in diameter and with a two-inch round cutter or rim of glass dipped in flour, cut out as many rounds as possible, re-rolling scraps as necessary. Arrange the rounds about one inch apart on a baking sheet and bake in the middle of the oven 15 to 20 minutes or until pale golden. I decided to rebel and pat them into a square and cut them into smaller ones. The square shapes didn't keep very well, so I don't re recommend this. So, But learn from me, people. <laughs> Serve the scones with, warm with creme fraiche or whipped cream. Scones keep individually wrapped in plastic wrap and foil, chilled one day or frozen for one week. Next, we've got kind of an interesting recipe. You know, it's February right now, but this sounded so good, I just wanted to put it out there. If you got kids, definitely want to eliminate the uh, alcohol part of this, which they've done in this recipe, but uh, they look really yummy and sound great. So strawberry, lime, and black pepper popsicles. So I had these popsicle molds for 14 months before using them once. Yet in the weeks since I used them for the first time, I've made three other varieties and considered doing a five-day week of posts here exclusively devoted to popsicle offerings. I've basically fallen down a popsicle rabbit hole so deep. Now every time I see something that looks good, I think, I wonder how that would taste as a popsicle. My family's looking nervous around me, understandably. So what changed? Well, first I realized that they hold one-third cup each, just one-third of a cup. Do you know how little that is? You could literally stuff it with the most indulgent Ben and Jerry's ice cream and still come in under their suggested serving size while eating something that felt generous. Not that we're going to do that. Yet, I also realized that all of the headaches that most ice frozen dirts involve, desserts involve, egg yolk custards, buckets of leftover egg whites, freezer bowls, the churning of machines so loud and groaning that we used to seriously lock in the bathroom so we didn't have to hear it, only to have another two hours of freezer time to go, do not exist in popsicle land, a magical place where all concoctions freeze perfectly, but six hours stand between you and your next indulgence on a stick. Finally, seeing as we recently decided it would be a really good idea to buy a white carpet, I especially love that at least the ones that I've been making aren't terribly drippy, as they're mostly fruit purees and other thick things, they don't so much melt back to a watery state when someone takes an hour to finish one. I bought this book on paletas a few weeks ago, and look, I admit when it came out, I thought, a whole book of Mexican-style popsicle recipes? I can't imagine needing that, but while my popsicle molds collected dust. Oh, silly, silly Deb. This book takes something as simple as a frozen thing on stick and raises it to an art form. I haven't made one recipe from this book that didn't knock it so far out of the park. We didn't sit there in total silence muttering, no, this one's the best one yet, each time only having to update our opinion when the next one came out of the freezer. And then there are these, 
Our favorite summer cocktail hinges on just four tiny things. Strawberries, lime juice, black pepper, and white tequila. But the combination is out of this world. I even tried to reverse engineer it in my book only moderately successfully and probably could have saved some time if I had just been like Googled it. So anyway, I did not make these with tequila in them in part because the ingredients are so absolutely amazing without it. And also because yes, mommy made a freezer full of vibrant red homemade popsicles from your favorite fruit, but they're not for you. Nan, yeah, it's some pretty cruel tantrum bait. So, Fortunately, Tracy from Shutterbean has solved everything once again, and it's called, or I call it, the After Bedtime Dip. You're welcome. Here we go. Here's the recipe. Strawberry, lime, and black pepper popsicles. Strawberry cooking and freezing technique from Paletas. Flavors from the red and black cocktail at Back 40. Prior to falling in love with this cocktail, I'd only paired strawberry with lemon and I was missing out because lime is the perfect contrast to the strawberries, spun sugar, cotton candy, pink frosting earnestness. It's second only to the black pepper, which you can add at whatever level you're comfortable with. One quarter teaspoon was only vaguely noticeable and did not go mentioned by the resident spice sensitive preschooler. Needn't add straightforward spiciness so much as a background pick me up. You'll be amazed by how well strawberries and black pepper go together. They're totally the yin to each other's yang, even when you're not doing the after bedtime dip in white tequila. <laughs> Texture-wise, we love that these popsicles, since they're made from tender, fresh strawberries, don't get rock hard the way that ones made from juice will, but they stay tender and totally nibbleable. So you'll need four slightly heaped cups of fresh, ripe strawberries, hulled and quartered two-thirds to three-quarters cup of granulated sugar. We use the latter, but if you, uh, use less if you're sensitive to sugar. One-half cup of water, juice of two limes, one-quarter to one-half teaspoon of freshly ground black pepper. Use less for barely detectable bite if you like it, but if you'd like to be more present, go for the half teaspoon. A pinch of sea salt. You're going to combine the strawberries and sugar in a bowl and let them sit for 15 minutes if they're really fresh and longer if they're firm or off-season berries. Transfer the mixture to a saucepan and add the water and bring to a boil then reduce to a simmer and cook for five minutes. Let cool to room temperature. You can hasten this along by transferring them back to their macerating bowl and setting that in a bowl of ice water. Once cooled, you're going to transfer to a blender or food processor, add the lime juice, pepper, and salt, and blend until mostly smooth. I find some leftover bits lovely in here. Divide between popsicle molds. You'll have about three and a quarter cups of the mixture, which divides evenly among ten one-third cup molds, with a quarter inch space on top to make room for expansion and freezing. Then you're going to freeze for about five hours or until completely frozen and then dip in lukewarm water for 10 seconds to unmold each popsicle. As far as the after bedtime dipping, put a shot of white tequila in a glass wide enough to dip the popsicle and yes, you can double dip. There's something for everyone here. All right, next we have a recipe for whole wheat chocolate oat cookies. I am looking forward to that. 
Because I'm the happiest when I let cakes be cakes and cookies be cookies and all of their real butter and refined sugar bliss, I rarely swap whole wheat or other ingredients and desserts in an effort to put a health halo on them, with two exceptions. The first is morning baked goods, usually muffins that I'd make for the kids on a weekday, which just feel more like breakfast when they're at least resemble, say, a birthday cake. Not that there aren't days that require that too. The second is when I think the baked good is improved by the ingredient swap, more crisp or craggy or dynamic or flavorful. I just never expected it to happen to what we call our house cookie, a one bowl oatmeal cookie I probably made so many times a year for well over a decade, always putting extra scoops in the freezer so we can have freshly baked cookies when life demands them. But when, like most of us, I ran low on white flour in April, I used whole wheat instead and discovered that the recipe wasn't just as good as it was with the white flour, but it was better, crunchier, more flavorful, and even nuanced. From there, I swapped in a little raw sugar, and I bumped up the salt a little, added a little extra cragginess, sometimes with wheat germ or bran, and at other times with finely chopped walnuts. A little baking powder gives them an almost Levain-like height at larger sizes if you rest the dough a bit. But don't worry, they're still a treat. Butter, lots of dark chocolate, chunks or chips, and we like them on the big side in three tablespoon scoops for the most varied and interesting texture. And even though regular flour is back at regular prices on all of the shelves, they're so much better like this. I haven't gone back to making them the old way and I bet that you won't either. So here's the recipe for whole wheat oat chocolate cookies. This serves 12 three inch cookies and the time it takes 20 minutes. The source here at Smitten Kitchen. Note, you can watch an Instagram story demo of this recipe over here, and there's a link on smittenkitchen.com. This makes just a small batch, perfect for our weekday needs. I promise you will not regret it if you make double. I like these cookies best with old-fashioned rolled oats. The heartier, the better texture. I use Bob Red's Mill here. I've made these before with a medium rye flour instead of whole wheat, and they were delicious. I make these with a leveled three tablespoon scoop and baked right after you mix it, the cookies can spread to about three and a quarter to three and a half inches. And after chilling in the fridge, even just a couple hours, they stay more heaped when they bake, spreading only to three inches. So if you don't have raw sugar, just use more brown sugar. So you're gonna need four tablespoons of raw or turbinado sugar, one half cup of dark, light or dark brown sugar, one half cup of unsalted butter at room temperature for a hand mixer, and cold is fine for a stand mixer. One half teaspoon of fine sea salt, one large egg, three quarters teaspoon of vanilla extract, one half teaspoon of baking soda, three quarters teaspoon of baking powder, three, three quarters of a cup of whole wheat flour, one quarter cup of wheat germ, wheat bran, oat bran, or a finely chopped nut of your choice. I personally like walnuts. One and a half cup of old fashioned rolled oats. One cup of chocolate chips or semi-sweet chocolate chopped into chunks. And flaky sea salt if you wish. You're gonna heat the oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit and line a large baking sheet with parchment paper. In a large bowl, beat the sugars, butter, if cold, in chunks, 
and salt together until they're fluffy. Add egg and vanilla and beat until well mixed. Sprinkle baking powder and baking soda over the batter and beat until very well combined and then a few more times around the bowl. Scrape the bowl down, add flour, wheat germ, oats, and chocolate and mix just until the flour disappears. Arrange three tablespoon mounds of cookies three inches apart on the baking sheet. Sprinkle each with a couple flakes of sea salt and then bake for 12 to 14 minutes. Cookies will be golden brown all over. Remove from the oven and let set up on the baking sheet for five minutes before transferring them to a cooling rack. Extra dough will keep in the fridge for three days and longer in the freezer. I like to scoop then freeze it on a tray and once solid I'll pack them tightly in a freezer bag. You can bake them directly from the freezer. It usually takes only one to two minutes longer. And cookies baked from cold will spread less. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-786. 7777.